You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 26, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, everybody. Yep. What? Where the hell is Bob? Bob, once again, is too busy to join us. Now, Bob has a major thing happening at work Uh that uh, is keeping him away. Hey, happy birthday to Roy Walford. Dr. Roy Walford. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Is he a listener? Uh, Well, probably not. No, he died in 2004. He was born June 29th, 1924. And Dr. Roy Walford is probably best known for being one of the inhabitants of Biosphere 2. I he love was that also, movie. though, a pioneer of calorie restriction uh, as used for uh, longevity purposes. Yes. He wrote a book about living to 120. It was not... Uh, <laughs> a Life of Perpetual Hunger. That's what the title of the book was called. <laughs> Imagine what Perry would have said about that. <laughs> I, I think Perry would have said that he would gladly die at 20 rather than live on a restricted calorie diet. Choking on a hamburger, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Walford lived on something like 1,600 calories a day. All right. It's uh, not that bad. Which that's isn't that bad. That's, that's really not that bad. That's slightly more than I take in when I'm trying to cut back on my fats. That is a yeah, weight loss so. diet, 1,600 calories a day. It's a re- pretty reasonable weight loss diet. That's healthy. Yeah. That's, yeah. Th- that's where you Dep- lose like the one to two pounds a week. Yeah, maybe even less. Depending on how active you are. Yeah, yeah. correct. And your basal metabolic rate and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, but Wofford, um, he didn't live to 120. He died at the age of 79 uh, from complications from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Well, that's not. It's not. Yeah, it's nothing to do with his lifestyle. Yeah, it's it's not really a a fair judgment of whether or not his calorie restriction worked. Although he claimed uh, at the end of his life that his calorie restriction helped extend his life further uh, by a couple of years after he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's. Unprovable. That's a nice anecdote. Honestly, you know, again, this is all anecdotal. I have no idea about this individual case, but that's unlikely to be true. Yeah. Calorie restriction actually hastens death in ALS. Mm. It, the, mm. Often, you know, the ability to get enough calories in and keep your calories up is a, a huge prognostic factor in ALS. So, if anything, if I mean, you can't, it's very hard to argue that calorie restriction prolonged his life once he developed ALS. But yeah, he also thought that his ALS was possibly caused by his time in the biosphere due to lack of oxygen and increased nitrous oxide. Exactly what causes ALS is not entirely settled, and so he suspected that that might have had something to do with it. That's wild speculation. Seriously, nitrous, o- nitrous oxide builds up in these biodomes. Is- I didn't know that. Well, they were having trouble in there, right? They, they had a lot of trouble. Although they did stay in there for two years, but one of the problems they had was a severe lack of food, and so it was helpful that their resident doctor happened to be this guy who believed in calorie restriction, and so well, he yeah. convinced them all to go on this diet, you know, to to join him in his yeah. Since we have no food diet. anyway, right. 
And so they did, but even so, at some point, many months in, they finally broke down and opened up a container of food that was grown outside of the biosphere <laughs> in order to supplement their diets. That would have so, made an awesome YouTube video, by oh, the way. Oh, I was watching the moment of breaking yeah. that chest open. So they just like, didn't... Did something go wrong with their food production or they didn't plan properly? They couldn't they were- grow enough food in the biodome. And, uh, you know, they never, it was never done before. They didn't have the data going into it. They, it was all just engineered and it failed. You know, if biodome as an experiment didn't last as long as they hoped and didn't, it really- wasn't self sustaining. No. Yeah. By all of their models, I guess it seemed like it could be done, but one thing after another went wrong. Now, and- see, imagine if that happened on Mars. Well, yeah. that's why they do this stuff. Although I'm sad that they're not, that they haven't continued trying that sort of thing. I would love to see that project continue. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know the details of why nobody has tried Biosphere 3, but. You know what I noticed? Um, I noticed Holy that. Sure. I, I was looking, him. looking at pictures of Biodome. Um, first, it's interesting if you look at it today, it's like a, a weed infested, you know, <laughs> backyard. I also noticed it looks a lot like Logan's Run. That 1970s yeah. movie of uh, mm. you know the people that get put into like a biodome type thing because that was like the last last ditch effort to save humanity and they they people were in there so long that they forgot like what happened that that was biodome man you ever see like it looks like it well yeah but a lot bigger there was apparently a biosphere three maybe still is in Siberia and there's mm. a biosphere J in Japan but one other thing uh, despite the the possible potential pseudoscience with the origins of his disease and whether or not calorie restriction can actually work in humans to extend the life. Walford seemed like a really awesome guy. Uh, he, at one point, um, like he would take off for a time as part of his studies and measure the rectal temperatures of holy men <laughs> in India. Uh-huh. He traversed the African continent on foot, according to his obituary in the New York Times. So he specifically wanted to go out and just have adventures. He said, if you spend all your time in the laboratory, as most scientists do, you might spend 35 years in the lab and be very successful and win a Nobel Prize. But those 35 years will be just a blur. So I find it useful to punctuate time with dangerous and eccentric activities. He once broke his leg on a motorcycle. That that qualifies yeah. as dangerous. <laughs> but yeah, he just seems like a fun, like he was a fun guy. All right. Well, Jay, tell us why um, we're we're going to be shut down. We can't do podcasting anymore. No. What? Done. This is it. I'm not convinced that we're going to get shut down as a podcast. Um, but this story has to do with patent trolling. Well, patent trolling is the business du jour. And if you haven't heard about it, for those of you who haven't, it's a pretty simple and amazingly lucrative idea. Here's how it works. Patent trolls, also known as non-practicing entities or NPEs, are typically companies that buy defunct businesses or you know any kind of organization or even individual patents. And they buy these companies for their patents specifically. And then they use those acquired patents to sue other companies for patent infringement. It's pretty basic, and it, it goes a long way, and they've made a ton of money. These organizations make make all or most of their income through the lawsuits. Most of them, like I said, they don't have anything else going on. They they become a patent troll, and they don't actually have a product or sell anything or do any other type of commerce. It's not 100% fast and true, but that is the large majority of them are just companies that revolve around these lawsuits. And this 
scam or whatever you want to call it has worked on some of the world's biggest and most lucrative companies. The U.S. Patent Office is widely known to issue patents for ideas that are already in use and commonplace. And these are ideas like, say, online shopping or a shopping cart system or a file sharing system or an in-app purchase, as an example. And many of these lawsuits are about things that should never have been patented in the first place. Like, I think that a shopping cart system should never have been patented. You really can't say, hey, you owe me money because you're, you're using this workflow process to sell products online to online customers. To me, that's insane. In 2011, patent trolls cost the, the United States or companies inside the United States a total of $29 billion. And, they have increased their activity 400% since 2005, and they they are 62% of all patent lawsuits in the United States. It's a phenomenal portion of patent lawsuits, and they're, they're you know really growing leaps and bounds year for year. Now, like I said, instead of these companies finding new uses for their patents and expanding on the technology that they already own, they're focusing on these lawsuits. You know, these companies are, are, in my opinion, they're pretty transparent because they used similar procedures to get to the point where they could start hitting up the big companies. And one of the things that they do is that they'll find a weak company or financially poor company with no regard of, of winning anything other than just the lawsuit from this company to set a legal precedent. And then they take that legal precedent and they take it to a bigger company and they'll, they'll tell the next court, Hey, we already won a lawsuit about this. And now, you know, instead of them, you know, just trying to win a lawsuit and maybe stopping that company, they're going to ask for $50 million. And they guise it as a licensing fee. Oh, we're just suing for licensing fees here. We want them to pay us for the use of the patent and they want, want them to go back to this year or whatever. And now, and we're, and we're not going to sue them in the future because they're actually going to be paying us out this licensing fee. Companies like Rackspace, Microsoft, and eBay just to name a few, are starting to turn and face these patent trolls and go for it, really, really get down and dirty in court and let, let the years go by and spend the millions and millions of dollars to fight them. But they're, they're putting their, um, you know, putting a, a flag in the ground and saying, no, we're not going to pay any of these blackmail fees. We're actually going to fight you and try to get you to go out of business. Very recently, June 4th of 2013, the White House enacted five executive actions and seven legislative recommendations to restrict the activities of patent trolls. And this is a huge step forward in helping companies protect themselves and make it much, much more difficult for patent trolls to actually win against U.S.-based companies. A patent troll named Personal Audio LLC has sued three podcasters and sent demand letters to a number of others. Now, this is the case that Steve was talking about. Recently, this company filed suit against CBS and NBC, and it has also sent additional demand letters to small podcasting operations. So an organization called EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation, is fighting against Personal Audio LLC, which is the company that's suing these podcasters. And what EFF is trying to do is help to save podcasting. Now, the first thing that they did was they asked for donations so they can raise the $30,000 to begin the lawsuit process. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to prove that the patent that Personal Audio LLC owns is actually not a legitimate patent at all. And what they're, the reason that they're trying to do this is it's the, the quickest and most direct route to stop the lawsuit. And the way that they're doing it is they're asking for people to help them find proof that the idea of podcasting, 
either in part or similar ideas or even the entire idea, if it was ever stated, written down, or communicated online in any way that they can prove before October 2nd of 1996, then they can take that proof to the patent office, go to court, and say, look it, you know, this idea predates their patent. It's, it, it was, you know, on a public forum and it, this whole thing is illegitimate. The worst case scenario here is if this company gets a foothold and starts suing the bigger organizations, you know, some of these organizations that can't afford it will probably pay, but I'd imagine some of them won't because as most people know, podcasting is really not a lucrative venture. And for those people that are running a lucrative podcasting venture, like Adam Carolla as an example, he's one of the people being, his, his company is being sued. You know, Adam Carolla does a pretty damn good job with his podcast and yeah. he's make, making some decent money over there. I mean, this could just put him right off the air. Of course, being a podcaster and being a huge fan of just the podcasting world, you know, I, I stand very firmly against what this company is trying to do. Now, I did read some things that, that troubled me that made me think that there might be some legitimacy to this lawsuit because it is possible that the person, the engineer or the software engineer is claiming that he did make these inventions and he does deserve some compensation. So about what though? What did he invent? RSS, you know, you know, the really simple syndication. They didn't do that. That's open source. What? MP3 files? No, I, I, I'm not 100% sure, Steve. I, I tried to find it. I was all over the web searching for facts, and I think it's vague, and it's deliberately vague. I think it boils down to the idea that you're, dis you're distributing serialized episodes of something over the web. That's what I read. That's it. I didn't get into so more he, detail than that. So he's... Um, yeah, but that's still something like BS. The, the concept, right? Just the concept of a podcast. Yeah. But yeah, let, me, let me give you a... It sounds uh, weak. It does sound weak. And let me give you an example of something that I saw on Shark Tank as an example. I really like that show for a lot of reasons. It's, it is entertaining, but there is a pretty good amount of stuff to learn if you watch it. And one of the one of the sharks on this show, real quick, what this show is, people come and they pitch their business to rich people, businessmen and women, and they... uh they, they're asking for money, like they want it, they want it to be funded. So, um, Mark Cuban, who is my favorite person on the show, is really, first off, he's, we've mentioned him on, on the Skeptics Guide before. He's, he's the only person I think that is really a critical thinker on the show, and he's, he's fought against pseudoscience when it comes on that show. But one guy came on with a, it was like a vest, and he, he had a patent. Where if you had like your, your iPhone in an in, internal pocket and it runs a wire up to like your neck and you have your earbuds there. And the guy patented basically running a wire through clothing. And Mark Cuban went apeshit on him. Just saying this is BS. Like, you know, it's guys like you that are, you know, destroying innovation and, and, and growth and, and, you know, companies developing new technologies because, you know, you're holding this ridiculous patent that stops other people from using a similar technology. Like you can't patent a wire going through clothing. It's absurd. And I, when I watched it first, I didn't understand why he was getting so upset. I did get his idea, but I didn't understand everything that we just discussed. I, I had learned a lot since I watched that episode. And now I fully understand it, and I completely agree with with Mark Cuban. I mean, this is the type of thing that squelches innovation, puts companies out of business, and you know all that money is just being siphoned out of these companies that are developing technology where where these patent trolling companies are not 
technology developers, all they're doing is they're in the business to just make money. That's it. They don't, there's no you know, good side to it. Somebody is just getting rich. They're like just, they're parasites. So if you, if you, um, are interested, you know, take a look online, uh, look up the company. Uh, the name of that company again is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They're fighting a lot of other technology and digital based threats to the future of our technology. And I, I do believe in what they're trying to do. And if you're interested, take a look and maybe even make a donation. I mean, obviously patents are important. People need to be able to protect their intellectual property and benefit from their innovation. But yeah, but patenting just like a really basic idea is, is counterproductive. It's absurd. The kind of idea like that anybody can come up with, but like I'm the first person to submit a patent for it. And in fact, you can patent ideas that can't even be implemented yet. In other words, if you see a technology coming on the horizon, you can patent a use of that not yet existing technology. And then when the technology does come online, you could then start suing anybody who tries to use it in the way that you patented. And all you're doing is patenting an idea, a basic obvious idea. You're just, you know, just, it just becomes a race to see who can, who can patent it first. It is totally broken. This, that's, that kind of system is completely counterproductive. Yeah. We, it's, well, the government is taking steps, Steve, and it's moving forward and there doesn't seem to be that much, yeah. uh, holding, holding back these decisions that they're making. So I think things are moving in the right direction. Well, hopefully. All right. Well, Rebecca, tell us about how mice have their own class system. I will. Uh, yeah, there's a really fun, experiment that's been happening on mice um, looking at their social strati. And what's interesting isn't the fact that mice set up class systems and have different social statuses, but the way in which scientists are starting to study them and study that social behavior. It's not necessarily like studying the way animals are interacting with each other isn't necessarily as easy as studying let's say, like what a particular drug is doing to a particular mouse's system. Uh, it's much more complex. You've got mice interacting with each other, displaying different behaviors, doing different things that you have to constantly watch and log in, you know, in, a, in as objective a way as possible. This study uh, by Dr. Tally Kimchi, which I did not know was a last name, but I really like Kimchi. Kimchi? Kimchi? Yeah, uh, kimchi food. is a delicious condiment uh, and also a last name. So Dr. Kimchi at the Wiseman Institute's Neurobiology Department is studying mice uh, and their social interactions using a Big Brother house. Uh-oh. So if you recall the TV show, which hasn't been around in the U.S. for quite a <laughs> long time, but yeah. Big Brother is a show where they have cameras that are constantly watching the residents of a house and the residents aren't allowed to leave the house and the cameras are watching 24 hours. And in the UK, they were broadcast 24 hours in the most boring feed you can possibly imagine. Same sort of deal here, only slightly more complex uh, because the human big brother inhabitants were not microchipped. In this case, yes, the mice had RFID microchips uh, implanted in them. Arphids, yes. <laughs> Usually these are for that. dogs. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, exactly. The same sort of microchip that you put in cats and dogs to keep track of them if they right. run away. And credit cards. Yeah, credit cards or <laughs> tube cards, things like that. So in this case, uh, the microchips were used 
to track the mice's movements. Mice? Mice? Mises. Mises to pieces. To track the Mises movements uh, (laughs) as they go around their little house. Um, So there are CCD cameras all over this relatively large house for a bunch of mice, I think. And a computer examining what those behaviors are. And uh, it was extraordinarily effective at parsing the different movements at figuring out what the mice were doing and when they were doing it, how they were interacting to the point where uh, they could predict with over 90% accuracy who the mice were going to be mating with, for instance. Uh, and they were also able to differentiate between the different genetic strains of the mice. So different strains uh, showed different behaviors that were they were able to see in the computer analysis. Um, so it was a, an interesting way of collecting a vast amount of information and parsing it in a way that could have important uses in the future when figuring out uh, behaviors. Some of the other things they figured out, they found that within 24 hours, uh, one group of normal strain of mouse had already established a leader and like a caste system. So it took about 24 hours for them to figure that out. Uh, but they also did an experiment where they put, they filled the house with another strain that they labeled as autistic. These mm-hmm. mice exhibited very little social engagement. And what they found with the autistic mice They is were vaccinated. That, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> what they found with the autistic mice is that no leader emerged at all. No uh, social strati happened, except for like occasionally it would appear that a a leader would emerge and then they would promptly be dethroned. So social mice like immediately organized themselves into a caste system while autistic mice did not. Part of the the interesting thing about this, this system that they've developed of analyzing behavior can in the future be used for things like identifying the uh, different aspects of disorders like autism or schizophrenia. Yeah, it sounds like a really great uh, research paradigm. Yeah, exactly. It's fun. You can go online and see, uh, I'm sure if you Google Dr. Kimchi, you can find a video of the mice running around in their little house. And it's kind of cool. They're all color-coded when you watch the video, so you can follow them around as they do different things. Yeah. Made me want to get my own mouse set up. They should make it into a reality TV show. They should. People would watch it. I bet within like two weeks, the whichever mouse established itself as king would be on the front page of Us magazine. All right. Well, let's move on. There's a study making the rounds. Another one of those studies purporting to show severe negative outcomes from uh, feeding animals GM food or genetically modified food. Uh, so from the abstract of this study, let, let me read you a part of the abstract and you can uh, tell me what you think about it. Feed intake, weight gain, mortality, and blood biochemistry were measured. Organ weights and pathology were determined post-mortem. There were no differences between pigs fed the GM and non-GM diets for feed intake, weight gain, mortality, and routine blood biochemistry measurements. The GM diet was associated with gastric and uterine differences in pigs. GM-fed pigs had uteri that were 25% heavier than non-GM-fed pigs. 
and GM-fed pigs had a higher rate of severe stomach inflammation with a rate of 32% of GM-fed pigs compared to 12% of non-GM-fed pigs with a p-value of 0.004. The severe stomach inflammation was worse in GM-fed males compared to non-GM-fed males by a factor of 4, and the GM-fed females compared to non-GM-fed females by a factor of 2.2. So that sounds like pretty impressive... Pretty impressive outcome, but does anything jump out at you guys that why there might be some problems with this study? Nope. Seems legit. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's great. This is like our lessons on how to evaluate studies, right? One thing you have to to always ask is whenever they're they're comparing two different groups is how many comparisons did they actually look at? Because if you look at enough different comparisons, then you can cherry pick random by random chance, you know, there's going to be some correlation somewhere. And if you're cherry picking that out of many comparisons, that's one of the, remember the researcher degrees of freedom? You know, researchers can manufacture positive results by manipulating the data. And one way of doing that, even if they're doing it honestly, I mean, or inadvertently, one way to do that is to make multiple comparisons. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a, there's a statistical fix that you're supposed to do. You know, for each additional comparison that you make, you have to adjust the statistics to see if it's truly statistically significant. So, for example, if you set the p-value at 0.05, then roughly speaking, that means that, you know, 1 in 20 comparisons are going to be statistically significant by chance alone. So if you make 20 comparisons and one is 0.05, that's probably just random chance. Not even though, But if you just look at that one thing, if that were the only comparison you made, then the p-value of 0.05 would be meaningful. So they tell you right here in the abstract that feed intake, weight gain, mortality, a whole panel of blood biochemistry were measured, organ weights, again, apparently all, all the organs were weighed and pathologically examined, and now they're just telling us about the stomachs and the uterus. So that's what we call a fishing expedition, right? David Gorski wrote about this on science-based medicine. So if you want, he goes, he's, he goes into it in great detail. <laughs> and I think he absolutely correctly characterizes this as a fishing expedition. You go looking for a whole bunch of things. You're going to find correlations by random chance alone, right? Astrologers are famous for this. This is astrology with pigs and GM corn, but it's actually even far worse than what you might, um, then even from the abstract, you could say this is BS. They went fishing and they came up with these two random things. Why would GM corn cause severe stomach inflammation? But it's actually much worse than that because what they did was this is a good way to increase your probability of generating false positive results. They took inflammation of the stomach and they broke it down into different somewhat arbitrary categories. No inflammation, mild, moderate, severe, erosions, pinpoint ulcers, frank ulcers, and bleeding ulcers. Out of all of those categories, only severe inflammation was worse in the GM-fed pigs versus the regular pigs. Oh, well, that's not what they said in the abstract. That, yeah, you wouldn't know that from just reading the abstract. They say All they say is severe inflammation was worse in the pigs fed the GM feed. Yeah, but not all the other kinds of inflammation. And in fact, if you look at all inflammation, regardless of how severe it is, there was a slight decrease in the the GM-fed group 
compared to the non-GM wow. fit group. It was just if you cherry pick out the one category in the middle, there wasn't even a dose response curve. That's another question you ask yourself. How many comparisons are being made? Is there a dose response to any effect that they're claiming exists? You also, of course, ask, is it plausible? But, you know, we could put that aside. So this data, well, this is an exercise in cherry-picking data. They cherry-picked the severe inflammation out of this arbitrary categorization of different levels of inflammation. Overall inflammation was actually, you know, this is just random scatter of data. This is random noise. But actually, the thing that they're claiming, that it makes it increases the risk of stomach of severe stomach inflammation, overall inflammation was actually decreased in that group, contradicting what they're pointing out. So this is complete BS. This is just utter BS. And this is coming from researchers, Judy Carmen, for example, who have a history of doing anti-GM research. Mm -hmm. There seems to be someone with an agenda. Basically. Yeah, how did she account for her personal biases, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's a bias in this direction, crappy data, you know, just a horrific methodology. Also, David pointed out that, which is a very legitimate point, you always want to know also in studies is, was, did, was anything unusual happening? The, when you're studying a disease, did the disease behave like it always does? When you're studying animals, did, were the animals otherwise normal and healthy, other than the thing that you were manipulating? These pigs did overall did pretty poorly. They had a very high rate of infection and complications and almost as if they weren't well cared for. So that's like an outlier. It really calls into question just what was happening in this study. The final analysis is, again, you, you want to avoid nitpicking little details of a study and then claiming that the results are invalid. You have to put put it into context. But these are fatal flaws that we're talking about and taken together they make the results of this study worthless and uninterpretable. But yet this is being spread around the internet as a stunning, you know, study showing that GM cor corn, you know, and GM feed causes this horrible stomach inflammation in pigs as if there's something dangerous, you know, about this particular type of GM feed. And it's all based upon the naturalistic fallacy. It's all just genetic modification ain't natural. Yeah, it's really just nonsense. Are people eating the same exact food that they fed the pigs? Well, this is animal feed, so no. You know, again, they're they're trying to just make genetic mod genetically modified food seem scary. Yeah, it's just fear mongering. At the end of the day, is what it is. Now, are they going to do a follow up, Steve? Because typically, when a study like this happens, some other group will do a t another one similar or exactly like they did just to see if the results match. Yeah, I'd like to see this replicated. You know, I strongly predict this is not the kind of study that's going to replicate. And replication, of course, is is in the final analysis. That's how you tell. When you do this kind of multiple analysis where you're just looking at – you're just throwing a whole bunch of crap up against the wall and seeing what sticks – that study is never conclusive. That is always an exploratory study. Then you say, okay, we have this correlation. When we, when we looked at 20, 30, 40 comparisons, we found this correlation. Then you get a fresh set of data. You replicate the study and see if that correlation holds up. If it was all random statistical noise, it'll go away and you'll probably, probably see some other random association. But if it's real effect, it should replicate, and that's how you know. So 
This is an exploratory study at best because of all the multiple comparisons. It's not the kind of thing that should be reported in the press as fear-mongering about GM food. It's the kind of thing that should at best inspire a follow-up study. Let me give you an analogy to help put this into perspective. Uh, prayer, intercessory prayer research. You guys familiar with, with that research? Where there was yes. a number of studies that were done looking at people who were sick and they were getting prayed for by a third party, intercessory prayer, and they often didn't even know that they were being prayed for. They knew that they were in the study, but they didn't know if they were in the prayed for group or the not prayed for group. Tons of problems with this research, but the bottom line is that they did multiple comparisons, right? So like they, for example, looked at patients in the cardiac ICU and they followed number of complications, number of days in the ICU, number of days in the hospital, survival. They looked at multiple, multiple different endpoints. And then in one study, again, they're like, there weren't differences across the board. It was like this one outcome was a little bit better in the prayer group. Then they replicated the study and a different outcome was a little bit better, but not overall. Like overall, it's random noise. But again, the same outcome wasn't better. It's like a different outcome every time. That's that's not a replication. That's a failure to replicate. That is consistent with random noise, which is, of course, what you would expect when your hypothesis is magic makes people better, you know? <laughs> that's true. This is when you're considering the multiple comparisons that are being disclosed in the study. You may not be aware, though, that they have they may have made, the researchers may have made multiple comparisons and then only published the ones that were positive or just a small subset. So they might have done all kinds of comparisons like, oh, that doesn't work, that doesn't look good, and just discarded it and never reported it, which is why, why you know, no single study is ever that believable, especially if it's like one research group uh, or just a one-off study. It's hard – and we get we get confronted with this all the time. Oh, here's a study on ESP. Why don't you guys believe this? Because it's one study. Because <laughs> yeah. I, you have no idea what, what these researchers really did behind the scenes. It would be great if grade school science teachers would, during a science fair, point out to their students that all of the things the students did to make their science fair project look better and get an A is exactly what scientists right. still do once they're actual working scientists and hey that's wrong make sure you don't actually do that when you're getting paid <laughs> well, yeah. you mean like fudge the numbers and uh no, yeah, yeah like i did that yeah. when i was when i was doing science fair projects i would have uh outliers that i'd be like oh well that one just didn't count like if i just yeah. erase this then <laughs> i get i get like a nice clean line here and uh i get an a because it looks like i really did my stuff <laughs> Yeah, so, you're absolutely yeah. right. Teachers should emphasize that it's the messiness that they want to see. If they get something yes. that looks too clean, that's that should count down your grade down, not up. Yeah, my daughter recently, my older daughter recently, like last year, had a science fair, and I made sure that there were no shenanigans on, <laughs> for her data. But going walking through the posters of all the other students' um, studies, uh, they were you know a lot of them. Of course, you know, like an uber skeptic evaluating a 12-year-old science. Yeah, could project. you imagine <laughs> Steve walking around, like checking out the, you're like, uh, hey, kid, you know, you're, you're all wrong over here. No, but, but I just did it. It was a good teaching opportunity for my daughter. I didn't like criticize the students and make sure them cry. But I, it was like to Julia, like we, it was a little, it was a good lesson. Like, okay, let's look at this study. What do you think about this? You know, what were the methods and you know, what, what are they doing wrong here? 
like not using control groups and not carefully defining terms. I mean, every error that there was it's possible to make was made, of course. But it, it is, it's, it's a good, it's an awesome learning opportunity, you know, to ruthlessly pick through those that, you, you know, you could do it in a constructive, nurturing way, but to, but there's, that would, that would be a great learning opportunity to show how hard it is to do good science and all the ways in yeah. which even doing a simple science project can go awry. And on that note, I, I just wanted to mention that I think I might have mentioned this before, but you can, if, if you're interested, you can volunteer to be a judge at the local science fair. They'll probably be happy to have you. I did it a couple of years ago at a local high school and I really enjoyed it. Just talking to the kids and finding out what they were interested in. It was, it was pretty cool. Awesome. That is cool. Very cool. All right, well, Evan, you're going to finish up the news segment of our show with a, a the latest stunning evidence of the mm-hmm. Florida skunk ape. <laughs> stunning skunk evidence, ape. indeed. The skunk ape, of course. In Sarasota County, Florida, a man claims he has spotted Florida's elusive skunk ape. Very elusive. So the, so the headlines read from CBS Miami. All right, so what is a skunk ape? Well, who better to ask than the folks at floridaskunkape.com? Yes, there is such a website. Anybody? <laughs> uh, they claim it's what Floridians call their local version of Bigfoot. It's known as Sasquatch in most other places in North America. Oh, yeah. Evidence supporting the existence of the creature has been gathered over the years and consists of hundreds of documented sightings, a few pictures, several foot casts, and a few hair samples. Mm-hmm. So they have actual evidence, apparently, right? Uh, it gets its name from the very fact it lives in Florida and that it emits an awful stench. Now, that's their writing. I didn't write that. that that's from their wa- website. Lives in the state of Florida and emits an awful stench. People who have the pleasure of experiencing the smell have described it as that of an elephant's cage or a trash dump, and one person even said it was like the scent of a skunk that did battle with a dumpster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I went. I went. To, I went to the gallery on that website to have a look at the the photos and stuff. It says your search yielded no results. Okay. So, <laughs> so much for that. But forget that for now because we have new video evidence. This is smoking gun evidence. Smoking gun so hot it must be shot evidence. Mike Falconer is the person who posted the video and still pictures on YouTube. I wonder what his. I wonder what his ancestors did for a living. They probably made barrels or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, he says that he captured this footage on March 2nd of this year, 2013, that he and his son spotted a large hairy creature off in the uh, off of it, it was a field at the Mayaka River State Park, which is a place in which the uh, skunk ape has been sighted before, apparently. And there were other people who um in this footage, you can hear them. They've also stopped their cars along the road to try and get a glimpse as well. Now, I think that's, um, well, not important, but I think noteworthy in the case of this. We, instead of having this, we're so used to having just, you know, someone out in the wilderness with a camera shooting, you know, whatever they think is a Bigfoot off in the distance. But this one is like has a gathering, sort of this little group of people who are all, they're all, they've all seen something. They've seen something off in the distance. Yeah, but they were, right? they were strolling around like nothing special was going on. Honestly, didn't. 
didn't seem that impressive to me. They were saying some things in the background, like, uh, you know, oh, what is that over there? And you know, I can't trying to get a glimpse of it and so forth. No, at, at no point did anyone say they smelled something funny, yeah. right? Whoa, that's a skunk or like, maybe go, I know that, you know, if a skunk gets hit by a car a mile up my road from here, I can smell it. That smell, that's, that's a very powerful smell. And if it's half what they're describing, according to the websites and stuff, I think you would have, you know, perhaps smelled something, but, in any case, so what they did is uh, the guy and his son, they started to pursue whatever it was they saw out in the field. So they've got their iPhones, right? And they're recording video. And at one point, you can kind of see something almost on the far grass line. It looks like it has to be like hundreds and hundreds of feet away. Something kind of moving around back there, some little brown dot or something. And they're saying, oh, yeah, can you see it? There it is. There it is. It's, Let's get closer. It's Let's pixel get closer. squatch. <laughs> exactly. And that, and that's when they decided, of course, what do you do when that happens? Well, you turn off your video camera and you start shooting photos instead. So when they started to take photos is when they supposedly captured the quote unquote evidence. And you, and Steve, correct me if I'm wrong. They're brown blotches. Yeah. It's <laughs> off in the distance along the tree. It turned from pixel right? squatch to blob squatch. To the more classical yes. blob squad. Absolutely. It's a completely unrecognizable, amorphous brown blob. Enhance. <laughs> enhance. Enhance. Zoom in. Enhance. enhance. Zoom, zoom. Yes. Yeah. Evan, do you know what the difference is between the, the Mayaka skunk ape and the Hampton bald eagle? Ooh. Um, one really exists has, and the other doesn't. I have close up, in focus, <laughs> unambiguous photographs of the Hampton bald eagle. <laughs> exactly. And yet, once again, someone does not have such shots yeah. of the supposed skunk. Yeah, now, and I, the freaking bald-headed eagle, I mean, that thing could just fly away. You know, talk yeah. about <laughs> it's, not, it's not just stuck on the ground. Apparently, in, two, in the year 2000, there was some video footage shot of something that they deemed the skunk ape. And then around 2006, someone else came up with something that was more uh clearer but it I, to me it was clearly a, just a hoax a guy in a suit walking around of some sort and that's and then there's this and that's pretty much it and a few other blurry photos out there which could have been anything shot by anyone at any time that's it that's the sum of evidence you have when it comes to this thing for the folks who the, the guys uh falconer who shot this video when he posted it to youtube he put up a description on the youtube channel youtube page he has and here here's what he wrote um, in regards to this, and I think this is a bit revealing. He says that this is real footage my son and I took in Mayaka, March 2nd, 2013. We had iPhones with us. You'll see actual still shots of the thing. Some have called it a Bigfoot or Sasquatch. The only editing we did to these pictures was to lighten it up. All right, so here we go. At one point, you hear us talk of two of them. It was a deer out there hiding in the tall grass. Maybe that's what it was after. You can see it in the middle at the thin tan line of grass just under the tree. You will also see the deer a little left and closer in. Hello, deer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what's more likely? You've got skunk ape legend, you know, in which there's absolutely no physical evidence whatsoever and all a bunch of blurry photos and weak videos of, or at the people actually shooting the stuff saying, yes, that was clearly deer there running around and, uh, hmm, gee, skunk ape or deer? I don't know. Can you, uh, what does Occam's razor tell us to think in this, <laughs> in this situation? Hey, it'd be more likely to be a Florida panther than the skunk ape. Yeah. It'd be more likely to be a zebra than a skunk yeah. ape. I mean, 
because <laughs> the skunk ape doesn't exist. Unimpressive. Sorry. It is getting a lot of headlines. They give course. you that. All right, Ed, so, now, you know. come on. I mean, it's, this whole thing has been a little vague. You know, what's your gut telling you? <laughs> uh, my gut telling me is that there is a network of skunk apes living in those fields all over Florida. And they and once again, I want there to be a skunk ape. You know, somebody please find some real evidence and I'll be all over it. But, you know, these fuzzy pictures, I'm getting tired of it, guys. By the way, I'm patenting the term pixel squatch. Every time you say it, you got to give me a quarter. Pixel so squatch. Uh, all right. Well, you'll hear from my lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> so have any of you guys heard about the gyro stim? No. Probably not. It's pronounced gyro. Gyro. Is that a new sandwich they're serving at Subway or mm-hmm. something? Yeah, it's like a really yeah, it's spicy a combination. Gyro. It's like a it's a regular gyro but with Slim Jims. <laughs> cool. So this is a machine that was developed by an engineer whose daughter has cerebral palsy, and it's essentially a chair. You sit in the chair and you have a little joystick remote control, and you can swing around in all three dimensions. You know, X Y Z. Exactly, all in every axis. He developed this. Because she was getting physical therapy in which she had to do exercises to essentially do the same thing, you know, rotate around in order to um, improve her balance and her walking. And it was a bit tedious. So he, you know, being an engineer, is like, I'm going to help her out. I'm going to automate this. So he built a chair, the gyro stem, you know, he built this chair and it does what, what he wants it to do. It rotates around in, in all, on all three axes. Now, unfortunately, some uh, not science-based practitioners got their hands on this machine or have ran with it. The engineer is Kevin Marr, and you guys remember Ted Carrick? He is a quote-unquote chiropractic neurologist. Yeah, I remember and that. So he, yeah, he's yeah, is using the the gyrostim and claiming it can cure all kinds of things. So I I wrote a review on science-based medicine of the gyrostim, which. You know, it's just one of an endless sequence of devices with overblown claims without adequate evidence. The thing hasn't been studied. It's actually not an illegitimate concept. I mean, there is, there is such a thing called vestibular therapy where you essentially do just that. You stimulate the vestibular system by, you know, putting, by rotating and changing your head position over and over again. Um, and it can, Treat. It's actually a very effective treat treatment for some kinds of vertigo. What's the vestibular system, Steve? The vestibular system. It's a very good question, Jay. Is a system in your brain that senses two things: your orientation with respect to gravity and acceleration. Um, so this is the three semicircular canals. You know, that in their inner ear, they have fluid in them, and when so when you rotate around or or oriented towards gravity, oh. the fluid flows through those semicircular canals. There's three of them, one on each axis, right? And then that moves hair cells that sense the, the movement of that fluid. And that's the sensing organ, but then that vestibular information gets taken in uh, by the brain and is processed compared to your visual information and tactile information, and that's how you get a sense of motion and stability and balance, you know? So this is your internal accelerometer. Yeah, well, exactly. When there's an in, when there's a disconnect between your visual input and your vestibular input, that results in dizziness and motion sickness. That's why you get motion sick. You know, when your vestibular system is telling you that you're rocking up and down, and your visual system is not because it's locked to something in in the foreground. So, and it's also a very delicate system, and a lot of people, you know, have 
dizziness or vertigo and we can't really identify anything specific that's not working. There's no lesion anywhere. Everything looks normal, but it's just that integration of this information is just a little bit off. And those are the people that do, who do well, you know, with vestibular therapy or essentially just sort of like retraining the brain to integrate this information. Um, it's, so it's the conceptually, it's perfectly fine. But where we get into trouble is in two, two areas. One is the machine costs tens of thousands of dollars. So it's very expensive. And there is no evidence to show that getting vestibular therapy with this twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollar machine is superior to getting vestibular therapy manually with no machine or just getting a twenty dollar swing and swinging back and forth on it and as a way of stimulating your vestibular system. Okay. Which is something that physical therapists actually do. Investing in an expensive piece of equipment and paying a lot of money for expensive sessions is not justified until there's research showing that this is not only as good as the far cheaper options, but is significantly superior to it. But there's no research. You know, there's the researchers, we don't even know that it works at all or that it's safe. It just, all you have is the idea of, of, of using the machine. But of course, that doesn't stop, you know, chiropractors like Ted Carrick from just starting to use it. But in addition, the claims that are being propagated for this machine, especially by Ted Carrick and, and also by others now, is that it not only is a way of delivering vestibular therapy, which is the, the plausible component of the claim, but that it actually helps the brain recover from traumatic brain injury. Oh, like yeah. Like in general. Like, oh. yeah. So I was reviewing a specific article written by a sports writer who wrote an article about the gyro stem because it's being used to treat a lot of like uh, hockey players who have had head injuries. Mm-hmm. And he did the typical journalist thing of anecdote, miracles are happening every day, then quickie, generic, canned, you know, disclaimer. But this scientist says it hasn't been tested yet, and it's not approved by the FDA. Now, let me go back to these glowing anecdotes. You know, meanwhile, <laughs> he's talking like he's mentioning autism and Asperger's. I mean, ridiculous. So I wrote a typical you know blog post about it on science-based medicine. And the author of the original article, Adrian Dater, who, again, is a sports writer writing for the Denver Post, um, leaves a comment, like a really pissy comment, didn't immediately get because he was a first-time poster, so we went to moderation, and it didn't mm-hmm. immediately get approved because, you know, we work for a living as, like, the middle of the day. And then he writes a blog post saying, I'm being censored over on science-based medicine, you know. Um, <laughs> Wait, so he, he gave you all the 45 minutes. That's not – Yeah. No, he <laughs> gives a full hour. He gives a full hour. So okay. – but anyway, that's just a little aside. But the thing is he, like, doubled down and, like, completely defended his journalism. So then, I, of course, I had to write a follow-up post on Neurologica just about science journalism, using him yep. as an example of horrible science journalism. Uh-oh! And yeah, and, <laughs> Gee, why would a sports writer be bad at science journalism? Yeah, I mean, I the no thing idea. is, the guy's, the guy's a sports writer. I don't expect him to be a good science journalist. But his problem was he wrote an article about science, yep. and he got it all completely wrong. He fell for all the typical pitfalls that non-experienced, trained science journalists fall for when they think that they can cover these complex topics. And he actually was defending his token skepticism. So I, in my, in my follow-up article, I characterized different levels at which 
articles deal with science, you know, especially when there's something controversial, there's the a false balance approach in which you say, oh, experts over here say this and, you know, this fringe lunatic over here says that and you treat them as if they're equal. Then there's the token skepticism where you actually give the bulk of the time to the fringe claim and you only have a quick skeptical blurb, which is what he fell into. And then there's the just complete abject gullibility without a hint of skepticism. So he was in the middle category of token skepticism, which you don't get much credit for that, right? There's, of course, the the fourth category, which is the way it should be, which is appropriate skepticism, right? But we, did, we didn't get that from him. So he was defending his token skepticism and then also defending the gyro stim, completely ignoring all of my actual legitimate criticisms. And and it's like criticizing David Gorski and me and the others on science-based medicine about the positions that we were taking. It's like, look, dude, you cover hockey. Go back to covering right. hockey. Seriously, <laughs> you're arguing yeah. with a group of physicians who have spent oh. a decade writing about these topics you're telling us we don't know what we're talking about did you say that to him yes i mean how <laughs> arrogant does this guy have to be <laughs> serious to, like he had a fit that we disagreed with his journalism he had a fit and it was horrible it was horrible token skepticism bad science writing he, he just he didn't understand the issues at stake and yeah, I wouldn't expect him to understand it, but he had no sense of his own limitations and of course he has no editor who would know you know, that this is an inappropriate way to cover a medical science news story. Yep. Steve, it also sounds like he's never engaged in any kind of legitimate discourse about things like that. You know, no, about- he couldn't engage. He got childish right out of the gate, which, you know, always just makes it worse, of course. Yeah. I mean, I can understand from one perspective, a guy like him never really entering that arena before, not knowing, you know, what to expect, you know, and of course, like, let's, Let's also acknowledge the idea here that he went up against science-based medicine, you guys, you know? Yeah, it's the thing. He had no idea what he was up against. So yeah. he, he started like trying to backpedal a little bit saying, I wasn't endorsing it. I was just relaying, you know, stories. People have a right to know about this, that whole coy BS. Mm-hmm. And then one, one of our commenters, uh, dug up a Twitter, <laughs> a tweet that he did where he's like, read about the device that cured you know, this hockey player of his traumatic brain injury. Oh, yeah, you're not endorsing it. You're not Uh-oh, claiming it's a cure. That's not an endorsement. He's just yeah. stating uh, facts. He's just, he's just reporting what he heard. Now, he was totally busted. <laughs> he was totally busted. How did it end, Steve? Did he just end up having to quit? Yeah, he went away. It was a, it was a fun little exchange, though. Yeah, it's, it's something to learn for people like us to learn from. And it, sadly, did that guy go back to his man cave and lick uh, his wounds? <laughs> or did he actually... Say, hey, you know, I screwed up here. Like, what did I do wrong? He did not give any evidence of any self-awareness in this exchange. Yeah. Hmm. They rarely do, though. You might have planted a seed. Might have planted a seed. You'd never know. Yeah, I don't expect most people to have the scales fall from their eyes and to say, I was wrong, mea culpa. Very few people have, I think, the, the, the security and the maturity to do that, especially when you're in the middle of an internet fight. You know, everyone has, as you like to call it, Jay, internet balls, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you're right. You never know. Maybe he'll be a little bit more gun-shy the next time he dips his toe into science journalism. Who knows? Or he'll do some real research into what the hell he's talking about. And we were, you know, to- we got very polite and very professional. Like, listen, we want to help journalists write better. You know, next time you want to cover a story like this, we'll be, we're happy to provide you some, some perspective and background information. What? Do That'll take hours. 
Yeah. Don't have time for I, that. I, I what are you like, asking this me? Is, this is what we do. I, I, I just told someone the other day, you know, in a similar context, I'd much rather provide advice ahead of time rather than criticism after the fact. You know, just run these things by somebody who knows what they're talking about ahead of time. We're here. We're a resource. Ask us. We're, you know, what's the worst that ha- the thing that could happen? We make your journalism better? Yeah. You know, that's the worst thing that could come out. Yeah, of. I mean, it's basically you're like you're saying to him, "I'll write your freaking essay paper for you, pal." Just all you gotta do is pick up the phone. Good journalists know how to do that. They know yeah. how to use resources well. All right, well, Evan, we're still falling behind on who's that noisy, but you're going to give us a new one for this week. Yeah, I'll give you a new one for this week. We are going to catch up on all the correct answers and winners and everything in a couple more episodes. Bear with us while we uh, get through this little stretch of podcasting. And uh, I'm going to play for you this week's brand new, fresh off the presses, Who's That Noisy? It is an actual noisy, a classic, as I like to say. And here we go. And so on the night that they finished filming the movie and it was completely edited, he made a disc. And the first person ever to actually see the entire film besides Spielberg himself was Johnny Carson. He's hmm. Okay. That, yeah. What do you want to know? Who that was speaking? That's it. Send us your guest, WTN at theskepticsguide.org or sguforums.com. And that's about it. Good luck, everyone. All right. Thanks, Evan. Thank you. We're going to do one email this week. This email comes from Damien Tinky from Marlboro, New York. He writes, Hey, guys. Thanks for the show. I've been listening for years now, and it's by far and away my favorite podcast. I was wondering if you heard about Static Man reported in Australia. Sounds like balderdash to me, but who knows? Maybe it's a new Scientology superpower. Keep up the excellent work, Damien. <laughs> so he links to an does article. Like it, it does. does. Yeah. Static Man. Great. There actually <laughs> are there are like cartoon superheroes who are basically static. That is their superpower. Like static. Yeah. Hey, like powerful stuff, guy. man. Lightning guy, electron boy. <laughs> it's all good. So <laughs> the article he links to is from. September 2005. It's a little bit, okay. a little bit old, but I don't think we've ever talked about it, so we might as well deal right. with this. So if you, what I'll do you guys f- think? Static Man. Let me read the article here. It's very short. Let's read pieces of it. It's about a man, a man, Frank Kluwer, C-L-E-W-E-R, of the Western Victorian city of Warmenbool. Uh, he said he was wearing a synthetic nylon jacket and a woolen shirt. When he went for a job interview, he walked into the building. The carpet ignited from the 40,000 volts of static electricity that had built up. It sounded almost like a firecracker or something like that, he said. Within about five minutes, the carpet started to erupt. The article goes on to say that his clothes were measured by firemen as carrying an electrical charge of 40,000 volts. The Reuters news agency quoted Mr. Barton as saying. Yeah, I don't think that firemen could determine that. 40,000 volts. I mean, were they, were they saying... <laughs> you if kill you, people it, with that. Well, only, it depends on the current, right? Yeah, what oh, I'm okay. saying is, would, would, would firemen be able to make that assessment? I mean, I, I know that they know a lot about things that cause fires, and they might say, hey, in order for this type of thing to happen, this is the kind of voltage you'd need. But it just seems... No, that's a physicist, Jay, not a fireman. But I think that um, there were 40,000 volts of static electricity is not enough to ignite carpet, first of all. Uh, if the, for the firemen to measure the voltage, if, remember, there's no current here, it's static. Yeah. Then they would have had to discharge it. 
right? I mean, they would have to build it up and discharge it, and maybe they could they could measure the discharge. It's also you know it's just it's just too much static electricity. I mean, they, it's almost like that. It sounds apocryphal, right? You got, oh, he had a nylon jacket over a wool sweater. And he built up so much static electricity that he ignited a carpet. Yeah, I mean, would the guy run a marathon right before he went in there? <laughs> Someone speculated that with that much static electricity, wouldn't his hair be standing on end as if he had his hand on one of those grass um, static electricity generators? Yeah, hook a voltage meter. Up but to the I don't, guy, I don't I know. Uh, yeah, I don't know what the voltages you have to get to before your hair would stand on end. Yeah, and also, like he got out of his car. Why didn't he discharge upon exiting the car? When he touched the metal of the door, or when he walked in the building, I mean, how did he get in the building? With how did he not die? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's possible to develop enough static electri- static charge that the discharge would be fatal. I mean, there are reports of static discharges causing fires, but that's only when there's some kind of accelerant. So this is actually a real risk at the gas station uh, if there's you know gasoline dripping or vapors and you build up the static electricity in on the seat of the car and then when you touch the frame of the car it discharges that could spark and and create a fire there are reported cases of that i don't think that the um a static charge that a person can build up on themselves who could set a carpet on fire without some kind of gasoline or accelerant the straight dope does give a, some interesting statistics uh, they say that the lethal dose of a static charge measured, measured in millijoules is 1,350. Usually, like, shuffling across a carpet can generate from 10 to 25 millijoules, so not very much compared to what a lethal dose would be. And they report, like, you know, the, the really the maximum you could really get to would be something on the order of 300 millijoules just from building up static on yourself. Um, measured in volts, uh, they reference a study showing that, that getting, getting in and out of a car could generate, if you're, you know, dressed in nylon, could reach up to 21,000 volts. That was sort of the maximum that was reported. So not quite the 40,000 volts reported in this story. And for reference, uh, Typical lightning bolt, which is a static electric discharge, can contain 500 megajoules, which is 370 million times the lethal lethal dose. But how does someone wind up earning the title of static man if this happened like one time, sort of this fluke thing? It doesn't... Yeah. uh, Because it's the media. Sensationalism at its worst, I suppose. some, Some headline writer. I mean, how did Superman get his title? Sure. Some well, headline we'll writer, dubbed him Superman. By the way, did any of you guys see the new Superman movie? No, but I heard it wasn't so good. So no, um, we're not going to review the movie, but I have to say one thing. Krypton, its moon, was busted apart. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Somebody somebody oh. tweeted me about that. And even again. worse than the other movies, it was like half and half almost, just <laughs> hanging right next to each other. Why? Uh, Why? It's now officially what? a science fiction movie cliché. Every alien planet has to have a busted apart it, moon. It's an it's an homage to Thundar the Barbarian. Everyone was clearly very impressed with that horrible cartoon from 1981. But how quickly did that become a cliche? I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Show some imagination and don't have the scientifically implausible busted apart moon. I mean, okay, it's pretty, <laughs> but you know, if you're just doing it like because every other single movie did it, sorry, it loses its appeal. Do something different. No, have a I, ringed moon. Do something else. 
Yeah, I agree, Steve. I think I think what's happening is it's kind of seeping into the collective unconscious. Yeah. It's just alien worlds have busted apart moons. Of course they do. You know, it's just... It's all with uh, these busted up moons. <laughs> it's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys all ready for this week? Very ready. Oh, yeah. uh, sure. Item number one, researchers at MIT have developed a transistor that is switched by a single photon. Item number two, geologists have found evidence for a new subduction zone forming near Portugal which may indicate the beginning of the next phase of continental movements in which Europe will move more towards North America. And item number three, a new study of whole-body vibration therapy finds that it produced significant weight loss in obese subjects who lost, on average, 10% of their body mass in 12 weeks. Rebecca, go first. All right. So a transistor that's switched on by single photon. That's cool. And that's believable to me. Subduction zone. I I can believe that there's a new subduction zone forming. Uh, although I don't know if that would mean that Europe is moving towards North America. Um, I'm trying to think of like subduction is I think where one plate is sliding under the other. I know that it's the most powerful, like it causes the most powerful earthquakes, but I don't know how much it moves continents. Um, so I can, I can believe that though, because if it's one plate sliding over the other one, I guess that would bring Europe and North America closer. So, so then whole body vibration that produces significant weight loss. That's tough to believe because I know that, you know, there's, there's crazy things they sell on TV that you wrap the band around you and it just like jiggles you. <laughs> and then <laughs> to... <laughs> that's the, <laughs> yeah, that's what it sounds like. And I'm fairly certain that those don't work, but they might be based on something that does work. So I can believe that. I don't know. So uh, I think I'm going to go with the transistor one just because I don't really know much about it. And the other two make sense. They seem reasonable. So I'm going to go with that one. That's Alrighty. Much. Jay? Okay. The one about the transistor that's switched by the single photon. That is so cool. Yeah. And I, I could see that working. Geologists have found the one about the evidence of the subduction zone. I want to know a lot more about this. That sounds really interesting. How big is a subduction zone? How long will it take to work? And this last one about the whole body vibration. Wait, whole body vibration therapy. Um, that has got to be BS. So there you go. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's got to be. All right, Evan. A transistor switched by a single photon. Mm, I don't see anything scientifically implausible about it, certainly. Um, have we gotten to that level of precision yet? I possibly it's po it's that one's possible to me. Um, the second one about a new subduction zone forming near Portugal. I have a feeling that's the one that's going to trip me up. Ugh, I'm not feeling good about this one. But the last one, 
the whole body vibration therapy, oh boy, but lost an average of 10% of their body mass in 12 weeks. That's not insignificant. I mean, that's 10% pretty significant. And I think when you use these things like with moderate caloric intake restriction, you, you wind up getting results and it's hard to determine which one did it, the, the vibration or your limited on calorie your your restricted calorie yeah, like to kind of go hand in hand like use this thing for an hour a day and also you know cut your cal- caloric intake right? in half and you'll lose weight i think i think people who are using these things are are being a little bit more conscious uh, about what they, it is they're putting into their bodies so i think that's going to wind up being what's really going on here i'm going to say body vibration therapy that one is the fiction okay so you all agree that geologists have found evidence for a new subduction zone forming near Portugal, which may indicate the beginning of the next phase of continental movements in which Europe will move towards North America. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Awesome. Uh, that's what I like about this game. You always get one right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You <laughs> want to look on the bright side. Yep. We're calling it an embryonic subduction zone or a new subduction zone. You know, they knew that this the two plates came together here. Uh, they call this the Gibraltar Arc, but this they have new evidence now to show that it is actually forming into a subduction zone. It, they, the technical impl- implications for this are more about how these subduction zones form and the fact that just to read the conclusion in the abstract of the article, our work suggests that the formation of new subduction zones in Atlantic-type oceans may not require the spontaneous foundering of its passive margins. Instead, subduction can be seen as an invasive process that propagates from ocean to ocean. So what they're saying is that, you know, the way that the, the spread of subduction zones around the world may actually interact with each other, you know, and because it all has to average out, of course, right? The Earth isn't growing or shrinking, despite what Neil Adams has to say. So any spreading of new um, ocean floor has to be exactly matched by subduction zones. So I guess what they're saying is that this, because this all has to balance out, that they behave as if they're connected. And, and so that a subduction zone can literally propagate from ocean to ocean. I read this yeah. a while ago, but I uh, I didn't read the thing about the continents moving closer together, but I did read this thing that I had to read several times to make sure that I wasn't misreading it. I still might be misreading it, but it was something like this could eventually result in the Atlantic Ocean filtering down into the, like further towards the Earth's core. Like we could drain the Atlantic Ocean because of the subduction zone. Yeah, I mean that I've read I haven't read that in the context of this story, but that that certainly is there is, you know, speculation among geologists about what what happens to the oceans because of subduction zones and it does the water in the oceans getting dragged down, you know, toward deeper into the earth and will this eventually drain away our oceans or if not then what's what is the what other factors are keeping it in equilibrium. Um scary. In the uh, articles about this story, though, not not in the technical paper, but in in um, the reporting about the story, they said that Pangea type supercontinents that come together, then they break apart, and the continents will spread apart, and then eventually the continents will come back together and reform a supercontinent. This has happened a few times over the the life of the Earth. Um, so what they're saying is that if you know this this new subduction zone could spell the transition from 
the continents drifting apart to coming back together again with the Atlantic Ocean closing up and Europe and the United States coming back together. But what I don't get, though, is how that happens when we have the mid-Atlantic ridge with a spreading zone in the middle of the Atlantic. The conventional wisdom is that the Atlantic Ocean is getting bigger, and that is the Pacific Ocean, which is shrinking. So why won't that? Will this actually change the direction in which the continents are moving? Will this alter the mid-Atlantic spread? I could not find answers to those questions. Does this happen incredibly slowly, Steve? Or is of it course, be, yeah. This point, is talking over hundreds of millions of years. Yeah, it's not like the the ocean's going to sink, like breach and sink into the core or something crazy like that, right? No, no, no. We're talking. Yeah, these are things that happen over millions of years. Yeah, but it could mean that we could be seeing powerful earthquakes coming yes. out of that zone. That's true. All right, well, let's go to number one. Researchers at MIT have developed a transistor that is switched by a single photon. Rebecca, you think this one is fiction. Jay and Evan, you think this one is science. And this one yeah. is science. Ah! Oh! <sighs> yep, this ah, is a, this is a huge advance that... This stuff. Bob would have got this. This is one of those huge advances that we were waiting <laughs> for. Here. Now, Bob would have ah. said, oh, I, about time. Yeah, that's what Bob would have said. Because yeah. it I've is, it's like... eight years for this. It, we, we're, we're trying to develop light-based computers, right, rather than, than sending information around a computer and interacting with transistors with electricity, with electrons. We'd like a, a to... An optical computer would, would use light because light obviously goes as fast as anything can go. So researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, reported building a transistor that is switched by a single photon. That's huge. That's a major building block of optical computers. Um, they take advantage of a property called electromagnetically induced transparency. By sending a single gate photon, they could turn the switch on or off due to this electromagnetically induced transparency. So the injected photon excites the cesium atoms, rendering them reflective to light, trying to cross the cloud, so it t- turns off the signal. What, what kind of atoms were those, Steve? Cesium. Cesium. That is awesome. Yeah. So I wonder how long it'll take to get that to a usable shape. Yeah, who knows? That's the thing. Will, will this <laughs> will this actually translate into a usable computer that's going to sit on your desktop? Who knows? But it is, it's huge. I mean, they're th- they are able to, to make a photon-gated transistor, so... That will be cool. Uh, let's go on to number three. A new study of whole body vibration therapy finds that it produced significant weight loss in obese patient, obese subjects who lost on average 10% of their body mass in 12 weeks. And, of course, this one is the fiction. You made the whole thing up. No, no, no. Whole body vibration therapy is a thing, and there was an article based upon yeah. that. The I did, Rebecca, calculate the percentage over time to make it plausible. You did exactly yeah. what I was hoping somebody would do and say, oh, that's plausible. <laughs> so, well, thanks. <laughs> you got thanks it. for that. But as soon as Rebecca thanks for using went. using my logic's against me. As soon yeah. as Rebecca went, oh, you know, like that vibrate, I'm like, no way. Like that went out <laughs> in the 20s, this stupid thing. That's not what, but what this is. a little sound effect, Rebecca. This treatment, <laughs> it, it, the study was looking at bone strength and muscle strength in cerebral palsy patients. Um, and that they found that it increased the, the bone density and muscle strength in the legs, um, and the bone density also in the spine, but not elsewhere in the body. I don't know why. This is a small study. 13 adolescents with cerebral palsy received the treatment nine minutes per day for 20 weeks. So it doesn't appear to be a control group. 
Again, appears to be a bit of a fishing expedition with only some things being positive and other things not being positive. I couldn't use this as the science because the study isn't robust enough for this to be a science item. So I made it into the fiction. But yeah, so it's using whole body vibrational therapy to increase bone density. The weight loss bit is the bit I, I made up. To increase bone And again, density. speculative, mm. I don't know. I mean, this is an exploratory study. We can't draw conclusions about from this. We can't say that this therapy actually works, but... Well, Ted Carrick can. Yeah, right. <laughs> He'll start selling it for $20,000. That's right, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks. Good job, you guys. Hadn't won one of those in a while, so uh, it feels a, good. a rare solo loss for Rebecca. Very rare. Yeah. You're doing, you're doing well this rare. year. You are kicking butt this year, I have to say. I think I have been. Yeah. I'll usually. take it. Take it on the chin, like yep. champ. All right, Jay, do you have an impressive quote for us this week? Yeah, so a lot of people emailed me, and I'm going to be continuing to uh, yell the name. Yeah, a lot of positive feedback for the yelling. I had, I don't recall seeing one negative one. No one said no. stop the, stop the yelling. Stop with but all that know, yelling. Now, of course, we're going to get the people. No, too late. Feedback right you had your yeah. chance to no. not email us. That's right. Telling no. Jay to stop yelling. You had your chance. The window was closed. And on top of that, people <laughs> wow. said, Oh, and by the way, what's up with the, you didn't, you didn't uh, continue or finalize the dice rolling hubbub. Yeah, Jay, you have to do the calculations and we'll give the results. Yeah, so this is what I'm doing because I'm so busy with mm-hmm. the, the Octoskeptical Caveman business. Um, could anybody that has the time be willing to go back and make the calculation for me? Email me, info at theskepticsguide.org. I will mention your name on the show. I will thank you and I will see who's better, me or randomness. Got it. Okay. I'll put my nickel down on randomness. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. Uh, okay. This is a quote sent in from a listener called Magnus Hustveit from Oslo, Norway. And the quote is, data is not information. Information is not knowledge. Knowledge is not wisdom. Wisdom is not truth. And that is a quote from Robert Royer, paraphrasing Frank Zappa's anadiplosis. And it means it's the repetition of the last word of a preceding clause. Ah. So the word is is used at the end of a sentence and then used again at the beginning of the next sentence. Yeah, it's like that recent pop song by The Wanted, uh, Glad You Came. I don't know anything. I don't, <laughs> don't even know who they are. What is that? Uh, what? Um, is that a boy like band? Boy band or something? Robert Breuer! Paraphrasing Frank Zappa's Annapolis. The Plosis. Get the Plosis! I do like that quote. I do like that quote a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's very cool. profound. Of course, truth is not profundity. Don't Ooh, start. Getting in trouble That'll be now. next week's quote. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to be at TAM. Uh, everyone's going to be traveling out there except me and my wife early, and then we'll be there, I think, huh. on Thursday afternoon. And, you, and you're flying out when, Steve? Well, Evan and I are going to the Grand Canyon. Yep, we're going early to do in the Grand week. Canyon report. And if anyone has any ideas on stuff that we should do while there, then please let us know right away. Because uh, yeah. yeah, we'll be going out on Tuesday. We're picking a bus trip with the family to the Grand Canyon. We're yeah, going to what? The South Rim? Yes, we're going to the south end of the canyon. Yeah. It takes longer to get there, but um, we're told the uh, it's, it's worth, well it, worth it. Yeah. And yeah. if any of our listeners are going, uh, you know, definitely come up and say hi to us, and also uh, consider joining us at the SGU dinner. It's always a good time. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Doctor, as always. And until next week. This is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. 
For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.